This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Today, Dr. Felipe Valencia, Associate Professor of Spanish in the World Languages and Cultures Department at Utah State University, joins us on the New Books Network to discuss his book, The Melancholy Void, Lyric and Masculinity in the Age of Congora, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2021. At the turn of the 17th century, Spanish lyric underwent a notable development. Several Spanish poets reinvented lyric as a melancholy and masculinist discourse that sang of and perpetrated symbolic violence against the female beloved. This shift emerged in response to the rising prestige and commercial success of the epic and was enabled by the rich discourse on the link between melancholy and creativity in men. In The Melancholy Void, Professor Valencia examines this reconstruction of the lyric in key texts of Spanish poetry from 1580 to 1620. I'm your host, Dr. Julia Gossard, Associate Professor of History and Associate Dean for Research in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Thank you so much, Felipe, for joining me today to discuss The Melancholy Void. Thank you, Julia. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. This is a kind invitation. Thanks for your interest in my work. Let's start out by talking about the inspiration behind this book. Why this period of Spanish literature? Why lyrical poetry? It started as a dissertation. So I guess I would have to go back to the very beginning of why I chose this particular field. It is a period in Spanish literature of like particular kind of richness, richness and ebullience in literary production. It's called the golden age. Um, for sort of imperialist reasons, as you can imagine, because Spain in the 16th century established a transoceanic empire and wielded hegemony in Europe until the mid 17th century. So it as a term, it sort of took root at the end of the 19th century to celebrate this lost age of empire. But it is a period whose poetry is extremely rich, very varied. Poetry became in the 17th century like a major fact of life, especially urban life in the Hispanic world, uh, while also having this very long oral tradition, popular tradition. I became interested in melancholy because melancholy was a notion that served to articulate concerns about creativity and about where creativity comes from. So I think 
it is in the Renaissance where our notion of the melancholy genius, mm-hmm. sort of associating melancholy with creative genius, originated. Um, and I, I think my overarching project is perhaps to look at how people at that time thought of poetry in ways that were very distinctly theirs very distinctly early modern as opposed to ours. And melancholy is this medical notion, so it, it brings into thinking about creativity this whole consideration of the body and medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I discovered working on the book on gender. Yeah, I think one of my questions that I had looking at this is the definition of melancholy that you use throughout. I think that begins to explain some of this because you, you, in the very opening lines of your book, you say that you're thinking of lyric as, quote, the utterance of a melancholy man who perpetuates violence against a beautiful woman, often his own beloved. It's literally out of out page one mm. that you have here. And so, you know, as, as a scholar of, of words, essentially, right, of poetry, of literature, I think that this importance of rhetoric and lexicon and word choice is really important there. So you've mentioned this takes on a medical, a body terminology. How else are you maybe defining melancholy throughout here and using that as an analytical frame? The simplest definition is the one that sort of started off the debate in Greek medicine, in ancient Greek medicine, which is Hippocrates or one of his disciples are in the... 6th or 5th century uh, before the common era, define melancholy as enduring sadness and fear. So there's this notion that it's when sadness lasts longer than it should. So it immediately points to a problem of cause. What What is a legitimate cause for sadness and grief? What is it? Um, how long... What's the ideal length for grief? Uh, and of course, that's a social question. Like, what is socially acceptable? The second step is around the third century before the common era, uh, the Aristotelian school posits a very interesting theory that the more I think about it, the more surprising and sort of strange I find, mm-hmm. which is they posit that there is, that melancholy is what three different affects three different sets of people have in common uh depressed people so people who are sad mad heroes even tragic heroes heroes who commit great excesses and and heroes who kind of in some ways literally like hercules at the end of his life explode um and exceptional men in arts and politics and that's where the notion of melancholy in relation to genius comes from um so there, I think there are two fascinating things about that triangle. One is the disturbing link through access between creativity and violence. Because the creative men share this affect with heroes who, um, like Ajax or Hercules, who are quite violent and excessive. Um, and also, as uh, one of the fundamental influences in my book, this, this great book called the Gender of Melancholia by Juliana Schiesari, the melancholy genius was predicated of men, not women, and it has consistently been predicated of men, not women. In my analysis, I try to, so I look at that medical definition, and as I trace the theme of melancholy in different texts, or when I teach melancholy in theater, in at a 
course here at Utah State, I try. I, I sort of look at the medical literature at the time. So it is kind of a medical definition. On top of that, I guess I overlay the definition that Freud, Sigmund Freud, in, in a seminal essay uh, about 100 years ago called Morning and Melancholia, and Giorgio Agamben, in one of his early books, provided, which is a definition that, by the way, is, is very loyal and draws completely from the previous tradition, from right. which is that melancholy is the mourning. Melancholy sadness is the sadness that originates when you mourn a lost object of desire, but it was an object that was really never possessed to begin with. Got it. Because by mourning it, you, in a way, possess it. In some ways, a way to possess something that you could never possess, that not only that you didn't possess, but that you could not even had the possibility of possessing right. is to mourn. That establishes a relationship with the object. And I used, I, I borrow from Agamben this notion of the phantasm, kind of the phantasmatic possession. I think that's really interesting to hear also about this gendered element already within the definition of yeah. calling, right? That it is very masculine here. This is supposed to be, you know, associated with a man mm. in this way. And so that there is that already masculine element in here because. Your whole book presents a very convincing case that poets used gender violence in love poetry as a way to construct the masculine during this point in time and the masculinity of the poetic speaker in those poems. What I know about early modern Spanish masculinity is that there is a lot of bravado. There's a lot of performance. What did these poems reveal to you about how masculinity in 17th century Spain was performed or idealized. And it seems like maybe that definition of melancholy helps perpetuate some of yeah. as well. And, you know, what are some of the key characteristics that you really saw taking shape around masculinity in the 16th, 17th century that you're looking at through lyrical poetry? It is very complex. There is not only this, yes, famously kind of the, the, the Spanish stereotype around Europe at the time was the, the boastful Spanish soldier, the bragger. Um, this kind of very aggressive masculinity. Um, and of course, it was a technology of a gender that was deployed very frequently. And that's how the empire was built. And that's how hegemony was maintained and administered throughout Europe. But also, I, I think I'm in the line of scholars that has really looked at how a, a, a grieving, mournful, complaining masculinity is constructed throughout poetry, especially love poetry mm -hmm. in the Petrarchan tradition. Great books that to which mine owe a lot, owes a lot in the last decades, I think have shown that that sort of subjectivity of speaker who is uh, pining, kind of has this unrequited love for a lady, sort of the Petrarchan poetry of Petrarch that we all associate with the Renaissance, is as key in the construction of that mas of masculinity and the assertion of masculine privilege and masculine supremacy as sort of the, the imposing soldier. And and in my book, I really, I look at gender violence, but it's, it's not, I think it's the gender violence of men who harm the women they purportedly love, the women they claim to love. And they harm women, and at the same time, they manage to present themselves as the true, as the victim. And they manage to elicit a great deal of sympathy from readers because they are, you know, 
they are the speaking subject of these love laments. In this, in this sense, there are two key myths that I analyzed throughout the book. The myth of Apollo and Daphne, where mm-hmm. Apollo, the god of poetry, loves Daphne unrequitedly and in the face of her rejection, chases her with the purpose of um, assaulting her. And she, to preserve her autonomy, she has to be, she has to be turned into something non-human, into the laurel tree. Ah, but yet the tradition managed to turn that into the story of poor Apollo and the frustrations of love. And the other myth is the myth of Polyphemus and Galatea, where this um, Cyclops loved this nymph who doesn't love him back. Uh, so in the end, he murders the man that she has chosen, the man that she does love. But for the tradition, it has become about Poor Polyphemus, who is this kind of monster, who is this unsightly being, yet has a tender heart. Do you think that part of this development of masculinity in this way, thinking about especially the melancholy here, is one of the reasons why we feel perhaps sorry for the the male figure in these poems is because this is contesting a very what we might think of as hyper-masculine ideal in terms of other, uh, they're, they're demonstrating vulnerability. They're demonstrating emotion, which is typically not something associated with the traditional masculine. Therefore, we're supposed to elicit sympathy that they are pushing outside of gendered norms, yet simultaneously they're creating this very interesting category of masculinity as well. Absolutely. Uh, so I think to put it in in terms um, of poetry of the period, I think, yeah, you're pointing to kind of this lyric masculinity that resorts to kind of these mournful songs that elicit sympathy. Uh, the way that lyric poetry works, uh, it, it is poetry that is kind of designed to um, allow the reader to kind of slip in and assume these words. And that's why it uses the pronouns so much, pronouns that you, we can have it as readers. Right. When we think about aggressive masculinity uh, in this period, at the top of your question, I think we're thinking more of an epic masculinity. Yeah. Kind of the third person, like the subject of this of the tale. These heroes that are very tough and quiet. Like, um, So in one of the key texts that um, influences the poetry that I study is the, the wonderful... Roman epic, the Aeneid by Virgil, and in book four, as listeners know, um, there's this beautiful tale about the love of Dido and Aeneas, and Aeneas leaves Dido, compelled by Jupiter, because he has to carry on his mission to, you know, establish the Roman Empire eventually. Um, And the one that sings, the one that laments is her. Mm -hmm. He kind of quietly accepts the god's decision and obeys even though it pains him so that that's one thing yeah the other thing is uh, as i try to demonstrate throughout the book we have come to associate great art with this kind of melancholy masculine speaker that perpetrates violence against the woman he purportedly loves and moreover the spectacle of female suffering speaking of female suffering is one of the things that we tend to find beautiful. So in the poetry I study in the book, feminine laments, these laments of women who are being destroyed or victimized or have been abandoned, that becomes one of the great kind of genres of lyric. The description of the transformation of Daphne into a tree, which is, of course, a horrific spectacle, but 
that is described in, uh, in, in very beautiful terms. And that becomes um, an object of aesthetics, an object of aesthetic enjoyment. What I appreciate about this conversation in terms of masculinity, as well as that, that notion of female suffering too, is you're demonstrating the understandings of binary are not always in opposition to one another. The construction of gender is not any binary, mm. right? That there is a lot of, I think that's something your book really brings to the forefront here is that gender is complex. There are different layers to it. There's different layers to the representation, to the symbolism that gender carries here as well. And I think we get that through your analysis of these poems. We get this through the analysis of some of the, you know, longstanding tales that we're looking at that's here. I wanted to, to ask a question in terms of you're looking at some of the most canonical texts from this period, but you're also looking at a number of lesser known poets and poems. Why these poems in particular? What drew you to those as key case studies in this construction of masculinity? They they actually they belong to a very specific period in time. Um, I think at the end of the day, I'm, I'm primarily a literary historian. Um, so I really wanted to look at sort of how a conversation developed throughout a relatively limited number of decades, roughly from 1580 to 1620. Uh, I call it the age of Gongora because it's the age where Gongora produced this most of his poetry it I, I think it's an age dominated by him he is arguably the most important and consequential poet of the age he's not the only one uh one of the reviews of the book already points out that it might be the age of lope as well uh, because lope de vega had his career right around the same time they were contemporaries what i was what i think i, I made the case that gongora sort of is the one that sort of wraps up, kind of crystallizes and, and sort of pushes forward these poetics better than anyone in this period. Um, so I am looking at a specific way of thinking about lyric. It's not the only way in the period. It's not exclusive, but I think it's very influential. And I think it's very important. I chose poems that I think make very incisive contributions in this uh, discussion. Um, some of these poems are very influential and were kind of at the center uh, of these discussions in the period. The father of Italian poetry in the Spanish early modern period, Garcilaso la Vega. In chapter one, I look at La Raucana, which is uh, a very important epic poem by Alonso Ercilla. Uh, and then I look at Fernando Herrera, who was this poet and theorist of poetry. I also aim to look at different kinds of texts it's a book about lyric and thinking about lyric. Uh, in these, and I have to explain why these decades in particular, because it was during these decades that there was kind of a, a special, like a turn to thinking about lyric as a genre and to try to provide lyric with a poetics. In in the nearest Italian terms, of, since the middle of the 16th century, the early modern thinkers and writers felt were the most valid terms to think about poetry. Lyric has plenty of theory before and after, um, but in those Neo-Aristotelian terms, Lyric does lack sort of a more formalized theory, and that's what they were interested in. So they kind of turned to think more about Lyric at the end of the 16th century, of the 16th century, 1580, which is when I start roughly, is sort of a, a watershed year for reasons that I show. So that's why I look at those decades, and I aim to look at, at poems that are very influential and very important. I aim to look at poems that are not necessarily as important and as influential, 
but also participate in this conversation. So I, I kind of try to show how it's a conversation that really cuts across and also different kinds of poetry. It's a book about, book about lyric and about lyric theory, but I think that epic poems do a lot of work thinking about lyric. Um, does that answer your question? This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I think that not only answers my question, that, that brings me to a larger question that I have about your fantastic book cover. This is truly one of those book covers that captivates your attention, definitely gets you looking at it, definitely gets you thinking. I'm guessing that this is the Cyclops Polyphemus, yes. right? And in, in one of the poems that you examine, that's here. Why did you choose this particular, I mean, this, I, I get it, right? It's a striking image, but talk to me a little bit more about the the symbolism of this as the, the face of the melancholy void. Well, props to the production team and the graphic designers at University of Nebraska Press, which, by the way, is a wonderful press to work with. Um, I gave them a, a list of uh, a list of images, a number of images, and they chose this one and they chose right. Um, so I'll talk about the image a little bit. It's a shame that I don't in the book. It is from a spectacular set of frescoes that you can find in Mantua in Italy. Uh, in the Palazzo Te, which is a um, a tea palace, I think that's where they drank tea for the Gonzaga family, which is, as you know, the it was the family that owned Mantua, and I think they were executed around 1525 by Giulio Romano. the The set of frescoes are fascinating, and they touch on the same myths that Gongora in particular was very interested in. And I think poets in this period were very interested in, like in the 1580s. So there's this fresco of Polyphemus. There is a wonderful fresco of the giants rebelling against the Olympians and falling. There's a wonderful fresco of Mars trying to murder Adonis when he finds them together, uh, which is a very important myth for Gongora. In this particular, the cover, let's attempt an ekphrasis, uh, it, it depicts Polyphemus in sort of like this torsion. It's, he's like sitting, but he's looking back over his shoulder uh, with very imposing musculature. He is holding on, he's resting his pan pipes on top of his right biceps so he's kind of showing off his guns but also <laughs> displaying you know signaling that he's a poet that he's uh that he produces poetry he's sort of casting his gaze backwards with, with his one eye um and he is resting his left uh hand on a very very long club that sort of runs between his legs uh as he's sitting so kind of emphasizes his masculinity and <laughs> And sort of how, as a muscle-bound giant, he sort of represents this excessive masculinity. And in the lower right-hand corner, there are these, it's kind of the opening of a cave. So you see the sea in the distance, and you even see small ships. Well, there are these two, it's perhaps Galatea and her lover, Asses, who are sort of pointing to Polyphemus and exchanging a look, perhaps in wonder, perhaps in horror. 
So the cover, I think, well chosen by this design team at Nebraska, sort of highlights, it's an outsized image of a male poet in which masculinity is sort of overemphasized. And in the margin, sort of, we almost miss them, are actually the victims, the people whose suffering this poetry creates and sings about and in a way perpetuates and we almost miss them but hopefully not quite but i'm not an expert on the paintings um i have one of my mentors does a lot of work with art history and one of her rules of thumb is you never know you never show an image unless you're an expert on it and you're going to analyze it so I have failed her in that sense. I thought it was a really beautiful articulation of, of why this, how the masculinity works in there. So I, I appreciate this. I mean, it really is just a striking cover that when we think about the complex notions of gender, of romance, of love, of lyric, of poetry, it, it, it captures the sentiment of your book quite well, I think. One of the things, too, recently at a talk at Utah State University, you mentioned these same gendered romantic tropes have a significant amount of historical continuity. We see them in modern popular culture as well. And I really enjoyed this piece of your presentation. So I wondered if you might discuss that a little bit in terms of what are some of these continuities that you see in modern popular culture that connect back to what you've been studying? Even though it's a book about early modern and it's a book that tries its hardest to kind of ground the readings in early modern texts, in early modern ideas, in early modern documents, it is a book that was inspired, no doubt, by um, a lot of modern culture and, and thought. I I see in the poems that I analyze here and in plays that I teach in relation to melancholy here at Utah State, plays from the 17th century, like great tragedies from Lope de Vega or Caldera de la Barca, they are fables, they're tales about melancholy male artists. They're tales about artists and they are characterized as melancholy because that's a privileged way to think about the male artist. Um, And the suffering that he inflicts on the woman he loves as a requirement to accomplish the masterwork or as the masterwork in itself. I find that a lot of great tales about artists in our modern culture are very similar and follow this pattern. I inevitably think of some of my favorite films, such as The Shining by Stanley Kubrick, where we have this, uh, Jack Nicholson is this writer stuck. And in the end, what he ends up writing, what he ends up producing in this writer's retreat of sorts is the mortification of the terrorizing of his wife and child. I think of Rosemary's Baby, uh, which is, is is very layered in like, as we would say in, in narrative studies, within the diegesis, like in, in an intra-diegetic level, within the narrative, it is about how this actor, in order to become a better actor, sells his wife to the Satanist cult next door. So his artistic accomplishment is enabled by her victimization. In an extra-diegetic or metadiegetic sense, it was directed by... Rowan Polanski, who perpetrated violence against women and who mortified the lead act, female actor, um, Mia Farrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why she has such an emaciated look. Same is true by, of The Shining, by the way, as documented by Stanley Kubrick's own daughter 
in like the behind the scenes movie that she made about the making of The Shining. So that catalyzed my thinking. Also, I I benefited a lot from from for instance in chapter four in the way that I analyze how Juan Der Guijo, in this fascinating secret of sonnets, he um, he kind of gives a voice to these women that are suffering. So for that, I drew for, for great benefit and, I mean, great enjoyment of, of for myself as a reader from Carol Clover's wonderful analysis of slasher films from the 1980s. Uh, fascinating book because I think she was a scholar of Icelandic sagas in Berkeley in the 80s. Um, but I think just as a moviegoer, she became interested in slasher film, um, which is, you know, these horror films where um, these sort of monstrous killers go after preferably teenagers mm-hmm. who are misbehaving. And usually the last remaining victim and who has to kind of live through the horror and assume a heroic role at the end is the woman. Right. The so-called final girl. So for Clover's thinking about that helped me sort of articulate a reading about why choose um, female heroes who suffer as speakers. This is typical of art in the late 19th century, early 20th century, but it dominates so many museums. Um, all these wood paintings, all these beautiful, sometimes quite large paintings or sculptures of women who are suffering, um, finding great aesthetic pleasure in that sort of the female body and sometimes especially the female body as it suffers as a privileged site for beauty and for art. Mm. I, I hope that my monograph, even though it's about early modern Spanish literature, provides some ideas and a model to analyze these kinds of texts. I definitely think that it does. I mean, so much of this, we see those continuities within various different art forms, right? It's not just poetry. We see this, as you mentioned, in in movies and epics and novels. We see that come through. What are you working on now, Felipe? I'm getting started on a... I I want to write a book about Congora. I confess that one of the motivations is that when I was finishing this book, um, I felt I didn't spend enough time with that wonderful poet. In thinking and teaching about Gongora in the last couple of years, I have come to conclude that a need for a theory of Gongorism that accounts not only for the 17th century, um, Gongora and his poetic... Gongora, in the difficult poetics that he developed in his major poems at the top of his career when he was in his 50s, the fable of Polythemus and Galatea, the solitudes, the panegyric of the Duke of Lerma, that poetics, even though it becomes very controversial and receives scathing attacks right away from his rivals like Lope de Vega, also receives ardent, earns ardent supporters. And throughout the 17th century, as the 17th century wears on, throughout the entire Hispanic world, we're not only talking about Spain, but also Mexico, uh, Peru, what is now Colombia, becomes a hugely influential poetics that a lot of poets imitate. It becomes 
quasi-official in that it is used a lot in poetry for civic purposes, for civic celebrations, well into the 18th century. There are interesting, there are great theories uh, and definitions of what Gongorism is throughout the 17th century, or why it has that power. And then Gongorism, this Gongorian poetics, comes back in the 20th century and becomes one of the key catalysts to develop a distinctly Hispanic modern poetics. It does so for the Latin American self-styled modernista, modernist poets at the end of the 19th century. It does so. Um, fascinatingly, it becomes a key poet uh, and kind of the difficult language becomes key for some of the main uh, gay poets in Spanish throughout the 20th century, starting in the 1930s with Jose Lezama Lima, Jose Gorostiza, Lezama Lima in Cuba, Gorostiza in Mexico, Federico García Lorca in Spain, um, into well into the late 20th century with Nestor Perlongue in Argentina or Roberto Echavarre in, in Uruguay, and of course in the middle of the century, Severo Sarduy in Cuba and Paris. Mm. I, but what, I, what I'm, I think I want to read a book that sort of tries to get, bridge that gap and account for Gongorism in the 17th and in the 20th century. I would also try to provide uh, a more general introduction to Gongorism. So it, it is a book that would have sort of a first part in which I would um, introduce clearly and uh, succinctly, I hope, what, Gongor what who Gongora was, what he wrote, how is his poetry difficult and why, and how we can overcome that difficulty, what is Gongorism, what was his influence, how it unspooled. And in the second half, I think I would attempt a theory of what Gongorism is, what have been its main projects, what are the projects that poets that writing Gongora himself and poets that have written in his style have tried to accomplish. So it, it is a book that would sort of appeal to a broader, maybe advanced undergraduate graduate audience, but in spite of myself, I think you would also try to come up with an argument about what Gongorism is, an argument that, as I said, accounts for both the 17th and the 20th century, accounts for Spain and Latin America. Well, thank you so much, Felipe, for joining me today to talk about The Melancholy Void. It's been a true pleasure to get to know a little bit more, and I encourage our listeners to go out and get a copy from the University of Nebraska Press. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julia. This is very kind.